This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Today on Something You Should Know, where does all that dust in your house come from? And what is it exactly? Then, how to have more self-confidence and let everyone see it shine. My major premise is to help people to manage these negative emotions in a mature, confident way. So you can not sail through life, but you can really go through life in a state of calm and comfort, knowing that you can confidently deal with whatever comes your way. Then, the power of reward to motivate people. It's a lot stronger than most of us think. And how to be a better person. It requires three things. Productivity, morality, and happiness. The most important thing for happiness, and it turns out longevity, is socializing, having valuable, positive social interactions with people you care about is the number one factor in predicting people's happiness and in changing people's happiness. All this today on Something You Should Know. If you have to hire someone, what's the best way? Referrals? Well, maybe that could work. But just because somebody knows somebody who knows you doesn't necessarily mean they're qualified. Or you could pull out that file of random resumes that came in during the last six months. Maybe there's somebody in there. Maybe. Now, if you're hiring, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. As a business owner, I've found that hiring the right people, there's just nothing more important. Don't leave it to chance or a referral or a random resume. Use Indeed. In the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed, according to Indeed data worldwide. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com something. Just go to Indeed.com slash something right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on Something You Should Know. Indeed.com slash something. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? Oh, you need Indeed. Something You Should Know. Fascinating intel. The world's top experts. And practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hi, welcome to Something You Should Know, where we start today with the subject of dust. It's everywhere. You get rid of it, it comes right back again. So what exactly is dust, and where does it come from? Well, you're not going to like this, but a team of scientists in Arizona say that it consists basically of a potpourri of dead skin shed by people, fibers from carpets and furniture, and airborne particles and dirt tracked in from outside. They even say it can include things like lead, arsenic, and other bad things from air and soil outside the house. The best way to reduce household dust is to have efficient doormats at every entrance, 
wash sheets and towels often, that's where the dead skin cells are usually hiding, and vacuum everything. And that is something you should know. Some people just exude confidence. They're so sure of themselves that they they seem to know what they're talking about. They control the room and people pay attention to them. Other people struggle with confidence. They doubt themselves. They worry about what other people think. And they think others are thinking very critical thoughts about them. So how can we be more self-confident? How can we not let what other people think or what we think other people think about us crush our belief in ourselves? Sheena Hankin is a psychotherapist in New York City, and she has spent a long time working with people to help build their confidence. And she is author of the book, Complete Confidence. Hello, Sheena. So why, in your experience, why do you think that some people are just more naturally self-confident than others? I think some people are more fortunate in their backgrounds. I think they're brought up by people who have more confidence than others. They don't know it, but they, in fact, give that to their children, just as we give everything else to our children. And so if confident parents, or at least one confident parent, or grandparents and influences like that, we can grow up seeing the world as a safe place that's manageable, and that when bad things do happen, as they do to everyone, that you can react to it maturely in a problem-solving fashion. Um, The rest of us, uh, including me, didn't get so fortunate. We can be loved a lot, but we may not be given the guidance to do that, Mike. But it would seem that if you grew up with this general lack of confidence, that as an adult now, it would be hard to get. I, I think that's a way to, in fact, sound a bit powerless around it, Mike. I mean, I think the brain's always in a state of adaption. You know, that's a wonderful thing about a human brain. We're always striving at some level to be mature, to do better. I mean, people, you know, you look at the self-help books like mine. I mean, people read things, they try things, they listen to the Internet. They look to find ways to do better in life. And so I think I'm appealing to that strong sense of survival to say, no, it's not a, it's, it, is a, it isn't a daunting task. It's a wonderful thing to try and do. And like any new skills, it's always more difficult at the beginning. But even if you learn to drive, it's tough at the beginning. You think you can't put it all together. But when you learn to drive your brain, it gets easier. And one day you do it automatically. So we can make confidence an automatic thing if you really start out and see it as a skill. You know, there, there are those people who can walk into a room and just exude confidence and people are drawn to them. And, and then there are the people who walk into a room and immediately start to think, you know, people are looking at me, people are judging me. The thought process is, is like in reverse. Absolutely. And that's the good place to start because people like that are actually creating their own painful anxiety and shame by having that point of view that everyone feels about me the way I feel about me. And having done a lot of research on that, Mike, people make very, very sort of instant judgments about people. And it's very much like this. Do I like this person? Do they seem safe? Does this person seem risky and somehow dangerous to me? Very simple animal responses. So if you go in there and you're in your own head and you're worrying about what people think, you come across sometimes even as arrogant or distant and hard to reach. And that's a way, a way not to be popular. So what you've got to do is say, we have no clue what people think. And it really doesn't matter what people think. We've got to go in there and be open, look people in the eye, and tell myself, you know, I am myself. I'm not going to make up stories about what's in other people's heads. And I don't do that, Mike, and I'm a shrink. You said a moment ago that we think other people think of us the way we think of us. So you're saying then that 
If you walk into a room of people and you immediately think that these people are judging you, they're thinking less of you, they think you're less than they are, that that's what you think of you? That is what you think of you. It is what you feel about yourself. And that's what the problem is. You have a habit of feeling this way about yourself. You never got over that, you know, early stage. All kids are self-critical. We know what it's like to be a kid and your friends don't like you and you're devastated. Kids don't have a strong sense of self. But if we go on into adulthood for whatever reason, still being self-critical, still judging ourselves, calling ourselves stupid, fat, old, ugly, or a loser, that's my favorite five, you know. They're the five most common things people say about themselves. I'm stupid, I'm fat, I'm old, I'm ugly, loser, any combination of those things. And we're feeling shame all the time. We're going to think that other people are seeing what we feel. We have no way of doing that. So what I want people to do is to work on not being self-critical. I have a formula for doing that in my book, challenging their thinking and comforting that feeling that's really not real. Feelings are not real, and feelings are not to be trusted. That's what I keep saying. You know, we were raised in the 70s, the 80s to think feelings should be trusted. Well, you know, I'd have killed all my children, Mike. I have four of them. If I trusted my feelings at times, they're bad things to listen to if they're negative like that. I love that, that, that feelings are not to be trusted. But, but can, you, can you go through those five things again that you, you mentioned very briefly? Can you, can you go through them again uh, in a little more detail? Yeah, the five most common thoughts or habit of thinking that people have go like this categories. First one is I'm stupider, stupid, I'm stupider than other people. The second one is so prevalent and so painful, I'm fat. And I'm fat and people are not going to respect me like I don't because I'm fat. Um, in, in, my, in the sort of generation now, baby boomers, I'm old. I'm too old. I'm too old to be taken seriously and respected. I'm too old to do anything new. Stupid, fat, old, ugly. You know, there's something ugly about me. I'm a short guy. I'm, a, I'm not as a pretty woman as I'd like to be. Uh, I have wrinkles. All kinds of ways that people put themselves out of being so-called ugly. And the collective noun of all of those things that somehow in life I'm a loser. And that's a feeling. It's not a fact. But if you feel it, you'll act on it. And you'll act against yourself. So I'm extremely keen on people giving up those five, well, any of those five combinations. And you get a room of people, you'll find the stupids, you know, the, the fats, the olds, the uglies, and the losers. It's a common category, and all of us have, have some of those things. And that's the first place to start. Self-criticism is self-defeating. Do you think that feeling that way, feeling that self-criticism causes you to act a certain way, which is self-defeating? Or do you think that you can change the action and that will help change the feeling? You can do it all at once. You can challenge your thinking. You can really, really, really decide to do what's right in life and not what you feel like. Sometimes that means taking a risk. That means lifting up the phone and calling that person you're frightened to call. It means asking for the raise, asking for the date. You can plan an action and take it. And, and the third thing, most important thing, and manage the feeling. Manage it to reduce it so you're freer to begin to change your life. And I'm really talking about life-changing policy, changing your thoughts, changing your feelings, and managing your behavior all at the same time. But how do you change a thought? Hey, Chad, by challenging it. I mean, people believe what they believe their feelings. You know, if I think I'm a stupid person, you're going against a theory of mine that I think has a lot of weight. That people are very smart. Everybody is very smart. And anyone else who calls others stupid or themselves stupid, particularly others, 
is making a big mistake and underestimating other people. And I worked with hundreds and hundreds of people, all kinds of educational levels, even no educational level. I find people to be extremely smart. And if they're going to go around calling themselves stupid, you know, they're, they're really going to undermine their actions. They're not going to take, they're not going to be ambitious. They're not going to believe they can do it. They, I didn't, they'll tell me I didn't do well in school. Well, school's no measure of intelligence at all. Some people have academic aptitude, others don't. But it's no measure of intelligence at all. And people are very, very smart. In fact, I think people are brilliant. And, but people whose brains are full of shame and self-pity are underachievers. And I think in this country really suffers from something very serious, and that is the fact that we talk about the price of, of gas being such a problem for the economy. What about the price of lack of confidence? All these people in the country are not fulfilling their potential, their dreams, their ambitions, however big or small, who have difficult relationships and don't know why. And if we could only get them to work on the things that I lay out for them, which is done as a handbook, you know, you can work your way through it, um, you can find that you can release all your potential. It's really true. I did it myself. I came from nothing. No money, four kids, you know, and not much hope. I've helped an awful lot of people at various levels of their lives to do this, and, and I wanted to go to a larger public. How big a part do you think hope plays in confidence? I think hope plays a lot of a part because it's a thought. Hope is a belief in the future. You see, everyone who's depressed, and I don't believe that most of these people are on antidepressants, are depressed. I think a, a small category I know are, are, are tend to be negative about the future. They tend to, you know, see the world from a dark perspective. Bad things are going to happen. You know, it's all disastrous in the future, and I've got to be prepared against that. Well, no one can fortune tell the future. You can look at history, if you like, and see that things come and go. But I want people to see the world as, a, and luckily for us, living in America as we do, as a safe place, as a place that has a lot of opportunity, that is not out to get you, that is not out to defeat you. I'm not saying it's easy, but it, the opportunity lies out there and you're sort of well able to take charge of whatever you have and make that happen for you, whatever that is, whatever that is. I'm speaking with Sheena Hankin. She's a psychotherapist in New York City, and she's author of the book, Complete Confidence. A shout-out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. You see, for as long as I can remember, I have had to deal with seasonal allergies. Stuffy nose, watery eyes, the whole deal. And the worst for me is it messes up my sleep. I wake up because I can't breathe right. And during the day, well, you know, if I'm working and I'm all stuffed up, then my voice sounds weird and this is how I make my living. Luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. I use it, and if you struggle with allergies, you should too. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. I've been using Claritin D for years because, well, just it takes care of the problem. Ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear. Use as directed.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So Sheena, is is this a long process or is there kind of a first aid approach? If you're in a situation where your thinking starts going down that rabbit hole, that spiral of self-criticism and all this is terrible and I'm losing my confidence, is there something you can do in that moment to stop it? Yes, really. First of all, write down all your negative thinking. Make a list of all your darkest thoughts. Take a deep breath, breathe slowly, and read it back to yourself. It'll begin to look dramatic to you, short of some major, you know, crisis that we're not dealing with. You know, if your house burns down, it's a bit different. But if it, look, look, read them back to you. Now, I can't stand this. This is terrible. I'm overwhelmed. I'll never get out of this hole. Just listen to that, right? Wait a minute. Let's reduce the emotion in that. Let's rewrite, then rewrite the list. I'd say this is a difficult situation. I have a set of decisions to make. I can calm my anxiety if I breathe slowly and tell myself that somehow it'll work out. And then you can begin to make decisions. It's a whole different way to look at it. But write down your feelings. I used to do that all thinking all the time. And I was almost embarrassed reading it back about how dramatic it was. Do you know what I mean? Sure, sure. But but does it really come down to what you're trying to do here in gaining confidence? Is What you're really doing is trying to convince yourself that you're really not as bad as you think you are? It's convincing yourself you're not bad at all. I mean, what a judgment that is. I mean, are human beings bad? No, I don't think so at all. I mean, if you look around you, I can walk down the street. I don't expect anyone to hurt me. I don't expect anyone to treat me badly. I might find some bad-tempered person who's a little nasty for a minute, but that hardly makes them bad. Human beings are very good people who want to get along. And that that itself is a whole change of attitude. Even your bad-tempered husband or your difficult mother-in-law, she really wants to get along. You know, people are social animals unless they're extremely disturbed, and very few people are in that category. So give me a, a couple of examples from your experience, uh, some, some how-to things that, that can really help kickstart this process of, of gaining more confidence. Well, the first thing is the one we've covered, and I want to do it again, is write down your thinking. Write down all of your negative thinking and write a challenge to it. Particularly take the drama out of it. Look for self-criticism and self-pity and try and squeeze that out of your thinking. Rewrite it. And look at it again. You can do it. You can text it. You can do all kinds of... Put it, on your, put it on your computer so you can revisit it. And then you'll see that you're actually overreacting. The next thing you can do is really, really look at self-criticism in your life. When you walk, Practice walking into rooms and just not doing that. Practice walking into a room and speaking up and saying, I'm going to say what's on my mind. I'm going to say it simply and kindly and directly, and I'm going to let it hang where it may. I'm not going to make up that people won't like me, will like me, and cease to impress people. I think stop pleasing people. This is a surprising one to say, but an awful lot of women spend their lives trying to be good people by pleasing others, by not you know, putting their own needs second, and being very resentful and sorry for themselves, because you know, it's a tough way to live. Instead, Follow my great belief, my philosophic belief, that we have to sit with ourselves and say, Sheena, what's the right thing to do at this moment in time? 
And if the right thing is to disappoint somebody, let me do it kindly. But let me do the right thing, not what somebody else wants. So don't be a pleaser. That's one of the most common things people get depressed eventually about. And finally, manage your feelings. No raging and sulking. Raging and sulking is for three-year-olds. If you're angry, make a statement about what you're angry about, if it's appropriate, without blame. Like, I was upset when you uh, inadvertently, I don't know, whatever, took something of mine that you didn't mean to, or you forgot to do something you said you'd do, or you left me waiting for half an hour when we were supposed to meet. I was upset. It, it troubled me. I didn't love that. But don't say, you know, what kind of person are you to do this to me? Take the blame out of your language. Take the blame out of your language in your head. I think blame is something that really gets us out of the responsibility for our part in the problem. It just causes fights. So there's a few things to do. My major premise is to help people to manage these negative emotions in a mature, confident way. So you can not sail through life, but you can really go through life in a state of calm and comfort, knowing that you can competently deal with whatever comes your way. You know, just hearing you talk about this in the way that you do is comforting to people that that this is not only possible, this is very doable if you're willing to make it a priority and, and make the effort. Because I think a lot of people don't see this as a choice. No, they don't. They label themselves, I'm an anxious person. I'm a depressed person. I have a terrible metabolism. I can never lose weight. Um, I can't really expect to, I, I'm not, I don't know enough to run a business. Do you know what I mean? I, I just can't do it. I'm too stupid. They, they don't, they really damage their own confidence by having fixed ideas about the human brain, about their own brain. I mean, no one, none of us are inadequate. None of us are stupid. None of us uh, have the handicaps that we feel we have. You know, people, mostly people, if they have hopes and ambitions, they're usually reasonable. I'm not talking necessarily work. I'm talking about getting a relationship or, you know, a hobby, a new thing you want to do. If you have a, an idea of doing that and it's not happening, then you're in your own way. If you're procrastinating, it's a way to make yourself not succeed. It's a terrible feeling. And you're not going to get there. I always say therapy shouldn't cost you money. People come and see me. I'm not cheap, Mike. I have a big practice in Manhattan. But it shouldn't cost you money because you should achieve what you want to achieve as a result of it. Wait a minute. You just said that therapy shouldn't cost money, but you charge people a lot of money. I charge people a lot of money, but, but I, I expect them to go out and the benefits, you know, get the benefits they want and feel it was worth it. I have people say to me, and I don't want to be self-congratulatory, but it's a true quote. I had somebody say to me, you know, it was worth double what I paid you. Look where I am now. How much of this problem that you're talking about, how much of this, this lack of self-confidence comes from the worry of what other people think? Well, I, you know, I like to say there's really basically three kinds of procrastinators. The first kind is the perfectionist who thinks they can avoid criticism, right, by producing a perfection in whatever they're trying to do. And, of course, it's a nightmare to do that. You put hours and hours into things that don't necessarily um, need that long. And you eventually get tired of it and can't get yourself to do it. You know, all perfectionists to a degree are procrastinators. Then you've got the true slackers in life, and there's less of these. Often younger teenagers think it should be easy. You know, it should be easy. Why is it so difficult? Poor me. That's the self-pity. Poor me is too much for me. I'm overwhelmed. They use dramatic, you know, victim words. And they don't really seem to know that if you could manage that feeling, 
and put that energy into saying, I'll give it two hours and see what it looks like. You know, you'll, you'll begin to get a new pattern of behavior. I overcame some of that. And the final one are the people who are so anxious, so anxious that they just can't, you know, they, they, they can't bear the feeling of starting anything. They just can't because they're so self-critical. It's not going to work. It's not going to be any good. I'm going to get a C, an F, a D. My boss isn't going to like it. It's above my pay grade. You know, all those negative critical statements that they put off doing this thing because they feel it'll be terrible. They tell themselves, I do better under pressure. That's one of the ultimate lies in the world. No one does better under pressure, and the research indicates that. So we have to give up our excuses and we really have to comfort ourselves, which I tell people, teach people how to do, comfort their brain and do the things that we fear. My ambition for everyone is to do everything you fear that isn't actually dangerous. Ooh, imagine if everybody did that. Do everything you're afraid of that isn't actually dangerous. That, that, has, that would be a real confidence builder, wouldn't it? Sheena Hankin has been my guest. She's a psychotherapist in New York and author of the book, Complete Confidence. There's a link to her book in the show notes for this episode of the podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. As a listener to Something You Should Know, I can only assume that you are someone who likes to learn about new and interesting things and bring more knowledge to work for you in your everyday life. I mean, that's kind of what Something You Should Know was all about. And so I want to invite you to listen to another podcast called TED Talks Daily. Now, you know about TED Talks, right? Many of the guests on Something You Should Know have done TED Talks. Well, you see, TED Talks Daily is a podcast that brings you a new TED Talk every weekday in less than 15 minutes. Join host Elise Hugh. She goes beyond the headlines so you can hear about the big ideas shaping our future. Learn about things like sustainable fashion, embracing your entrepreneurial spirit, the future of robotics, and so much more. Like I said, if you like this podcast, something you should know, I'm pretty sure you're going to like TED Talks Daily. And you get TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. It's hard to imagine anyone who doesn't want to be a better person. There's something that happens inside you when you do something good. It just feels good. But what does it mean to be a better person? Better according to who? And according to what standard? What is it you have to do to be a better person? And, and is being a better person a never-ending quest? Can you always be better? Or is there some point at which you're simply a good person and that's good enough? Well, someone who has actually looked at this is Jim Davies. He is a professor at the Institute of Cognitive Science at Carleton University in Ottawa, and he is author of a book called Being the Person Your Dog Thinks You Are, The Science of a Better You. Hi, Jim. Welcome. Thank you so much. You know, when you stop and think about it, probably one of the reasons that we have dogs as pets and we like dogs is that 
your dog always thinks you're amazing. My dog loves me to death no matter what. But not everybody thinks I'm as spectacular as my dog thinks I am. Still, I mean, I like to think that I'm a good person and I try to be my best. And yeah, I I suppose I could be better, but is this just a a never-ending quest? No matter how good I get, I can always be better? It's never ending. And, and, I, and I think that this is something that uh, makes people shy away from it is they feel that for being like a good person or something, there's some end point. But I like to think of all these things as more like nutrition. You can understand better and better what a perfectly nutritious diet is, even if you're unable to achieve it. It's just a matter of how, how good can you do, right? How happy can you get? How productive can you be? And how morally good can you be? And you'll never be perfect. Um, but it's something that you're always working on. And those three things, being productive, being happy, and morally good, those are the three things that make you a better person. So let's talk about them. Like w- being productive, like how? That What would I do that I'm maybe not doing now? Well, uh, I think the two most uh, effective and easiest things that a person can do are get enough sleep and turn off as many notifications on their smartphone as they possibly can. Uh, most people in the modern world are underslept and uh, getting more sleep is good for uh, many things, productivity, health, longevity, happiness, and productivity. Um, But also getting more sleep is one of the most pleasurable ways to improve your life. So it's not really a trade-off. So I would put sleep up there. Um, But the other thing is that for productivity in particular, but also for happiness, getting constantly interrupted uh, with whatever you're trying to do is a large drain. It makes people more anxious and it keeps them from getting things done. So I would recommend that people shut off like um, vibration, sound, uh, watch notifications from their phone as me- for as many apps as they can stomach and, uh, you know, only check uh, social media and, and whatever else on your phone, maybe like every half an hour. So at least you get half an hour chunks of dedicated time to focus and concentrate on work. And that's the kind of thing that in the long term. Uh, results in the kind of things that people feel productive about when they look back on their life. And how do we know this? How do we know this isn't just your preference, but that there's real science here? Yeah, well, we know that people prefer it because um, people constantly do it. And the thing is, it feels productive. Like when people are juggling like emails coming in and answering tweets, it feels productive because you're kind of knocking things down uh, in a way that doing the things that are actually productive in the long run they don't always have the same immediate reward. So it doesn't feel as productive in the short term. But they've done careful studies of how long it takes you to recover from an interruption, for example. And although the studies vary a lot in what their estimate is, everyone agrees that it's an unacceptably large interruption. I'll just take one one example from a, a study of actual workplace interruptions. Like you're working on the budget and somebody pops by your desk to talk about their their weekend or something. Sometimes people take up to an hour to get back to the original task, and sometimes they they just never do. So these interruptions uh, by your phone or by coworkers or something like that uh, can really interfere with getting things done. So in addition to productivity, one of your three pillars of being a better person is morality. So what do you mean by morality? So morality isn't something that a lot of people think is scientifically invest, uh, investigatable, <laughs> but um, when people do things that they think are good, um, it's very hard to compare them. So is it better to like, uh, 
you know, work an hour at a food bank or to donate 50 bucks to the local theater. And I think a lot of people don't really think that there's a way to compare these things. But I've done an analysis where I try to put everything in some kind of a common currency. And that common currency I use is saving a year of a human life, right? So everyone can pretty much agree that if someone's going to die a year early, if you're able to let them live that extra year um, that they wouldn't have had, that's a good thing, right? Uh, and so what I try to do is put everything in those terms, and then you can compare doing one action versus another action or doing something bad or something else bad uh, and then compare them, right? That's what I mean by morality is like doing doing good for the world. And if you want to maximize your morality, you have to like find a way to put things into some kind of common currency um, so you can try to do the things that have the most impact. And so take that that theory, that example, and apply it into real life here. A lot of people, when they say donate to charity, they're very opportunistic about it. Uh, if they were going to invest in a company, they would certainly do their due diligence and figure out how much that uh, investment would return in terms of money. And when you're trying to do something good, you should try to figure out how much return you're going to get in terms of goodness. And so what you can do, there are several charities out there that actually have measurements of how much good they're doing. Um, and you can use those to try to do the most good that you can. Well, let's say if you're going to donate your money or your time. Sometimes I think people, you know, the, the problem with giving to some big charity is it, it doesn't feel very real. You're fairly far removed from how it actually helps anybody, and, and which I think makes people reluctant. So, so maybe they give 10 bucks to the guy standing on the corner with the sign, but, you know, how much good does that do either? And so I think people get very kind of confused. They want to help, but they don't know what to do to help. That's, those are great examples because giving to, giving like 10 bucks to somebody on a street, at least you know you're giving 10 bucks to that guy and you know who you're helping and, and it feels good. And when you give to a large organization, um, let's say like one of the best that I know of is, is buying bed nets for people who are in danger of malaria. You're buying bed nets and you don't know who the nets are going to. You don't even know if a mosquito would have bit, bitten them that night. And it feels very distant. This is another reason why it's important to separate your emotions and how you, your instincts about being good from actually being good, right? You should be using reason and, and data if you want to maximize your goodness because your feelings are going to lead you astray. And so when somebody comes up to you and asks you for money, it'll feel good because you have that personal interaction in a way that mailing a check to a, a company and not meeting anybody doesn't. Right. But you wonder when you hand that guy the 10 or 20 bucks, what's he really going to do with it? And is it really yeah. going to help? And, you know, it, it, it almost feels as if it's making you feel better more than it's really doing much of anything else. Well, the other thing is if you're giving money to people in your community, you're probably giving to people who are fairly rich. Now, let me, let me phrase that because I know your people are thinking, what? A homeless person rich? But even like a, a street a street person in Canada or the United States is quite a lot more wealthy than many, many people on this earth. And so basically helping poor people in the rich world is far more expensive than helping poor people in another part of the world. So that's another like a uh, result of this scientific analysis of morality that you should be helping the poorest people on earth and not the people who are in your community because you basically get less good bang for your buck. You can save a year of human life for an estimated about uh, 80 bucks donated to the um, most effective charities, but 80 bucks is, you can't do anything like save a year of human life in the uh, modern world with that kind of money. 
Yeah, but there is something about community spirit and, and wanting to help out the community that, that's a pretty strong pull for a lot of us. Yeah, so this is this is what I'm getting at, what I started with, is that that strong pull you're talking about is exactly the kind of thing that you need to resist if you really care about maximizing uh, goodness and productivity and all that kind of thing. Your emotions will indeed lead you astray. I mean, the question is, like, yeah, there's a value maybe to um, helping your own community, but you got to ask a hard question. It's like, okay, even if you think the people in your community's lives are worth more than somebody who might die of malaria, how many? Like, one person's life in your community is worth four people in Africa? You know, those are hard questions to answer, but like if if the answer is less than or is more than you need like 16 African lives to be worth one American or Canadian life, the number's got to be larger than that for it to be worth it for you to help the community. No. Your local community. I don't think that's... Yeah, that's the way it works out. Well, but I'm not sure that's the right question to ask. I mean, if if you save somebody's life just because they're local... I mean, good for you. Yeah, good for you. And there is some good done. The, the problem is that reliably saving somebody's life with, say, a donation or by volunteering is, is much more expensive than saving lives in a poor, uh, poorer place in the world. So for the amount of effort you put into saving a local life, you could have saved several lives elsewhere. Maybe. Well, the, the data show that that's the fact. So this is one of the things I'm trying, to, I'm trying to do here is that when you look at the numbers and you look at the effectiveness of various charities, you can see that it costs many, many thousands of dollars to save um, one year of life in uh, rich countries. And it costs only 80 bucks to save a life using the most effective charities in really poor countries. Well, I'm not sure I buy your premise, sorry, but uh, by your constraints, everybody should be giving to the most efficient charity in the world, and that charity should be focused only on saving lives or adding life to people's longevity. But there are plenty of charities that focus on the arts or medical conditions that are not life-threatening, but those charities improve the quality of the life of those people. And there are people who really want to help people, but the help has nothing to do with adding years to their life. And there are people who just like helping in their community. And I'm not saying, you know, that it, it helping your local community is bad. You understand what I'm talking about is maximizing your goodness. OK, if you're just happy being sort of good and just doing a little bit of good, then then fine. Right. But my my analysis is about trying to be the best person you could be. I mean, if you donate only a few hundred dollars a year to the best charities in the world, you're probably doing more good than you've done in the entirety of your life before that. That's just the way the numbers work out. Yeah, but I, I, okay, but it just doesn't (laughs) seem like that should be necessarily the test. If I feel good about what I'm doing, then that's my contribution. I feel better, somebody benefits, and it may not be the most efficient donation in the world, but people benefited from it, and they're pretty happy, and life goes on. Yeah, I mean, if, if that's uh, if that's a that's an attitude that one can have, right? Um, and uh, you know what what my analysis is about is you know trying to, for people who want to do better than that, right? Uh, you know, people can let's make an analogy with like eating, right? You might say, well, uh, yeah, this is more nutritious, but this tastes good, and so my instincts say to eat this, so I just eat whatever I want, and you know, it's fine. You know. You can branch out and think about how much the charity is doing for you and how much it is actually doing good. If you're just donating to charity for the warm glow of donating, then maybe that's enough for you, 
right? But that's that really is separate from the good you're doing for, for the world. So I'm, I'm glad you're pushing me on this though, because people, you know, this is the common reaction that people get. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I would, I, I just disagree. So, but that, 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 you know, you're, you're looking at the numbers, but I'm not sure that that's the, that's the test. I just don't, I don't think that, that some well, people. Let, let's, let's look at it this way. Let's, let's imagine that you're uh, in a room and uh, for the same amount of money, you could save uh, five people's lives or one person's life. Do you think that just be, you know, it, it really doesn't matter because saving a life is good and it, whatever choice you make doesn't matter. Th- that doesn't happen. Well, it does happen if you're talking about making donations to charity, however. So if you donate $1,000 to uh, save people from deworming or from uh, to, to save them from malaria, you can have an expected value of saving many, many years of life. So I feel like that actually is a choice that people make every day when they donate or don't. So let's talk about happiness. What what is that in your view? Scientists uh, separate happiness into two basic constructs. One is um, sort of your moment to moment happiness, uh, and we get that by just asking people how they're feeling at a uh, at random times during the day. And the other form of happiness is what we call life satisfaction, and that's when you ask someone to kind of reflect on their life and make a judgment about uh, how well it's going. And so that's how we measure happiness. Uh, there are those two constructs. And they're not always in line, but they're uh, often in line. And so what we can do is by looking over uh, lots of data and how people live their lives and you know, the choices they make and even genetic factors, we can try to see what will you know, increase the, those levels of happiness. And what will? All right. So there are two things I want to, I think, are the most important to emphasize. One is that if people are looking for the secret to happiness, I'm here to say that it doesn't work that way. Okay, because just knowing something does not automatically make you happier. A lot of what makes you happier is putting into practice a way of living, and that requires changing your habits, right? So that's the first thing. Just learning something is not going to make you happy. It's a matter of changing how you behave. That said, the most important thing for happiness, and it turns out longevity, is hanging out with people that you really care about, socializing, having valuable, positive social interactions with people you care about is the number one factor in predicting people's happiness and in changing people's happiness. And the reason people don't do it very often or they don't do it as much as they should is because it, it, it particularly in the modern era, it takes a lot of effort to coordinate times. Like people are booked two weeks in advance or whatever. And sometimes people just throw up their hands and say, oh, I'd rather watch TV. But over time, watching television does not make you as happy as hanging out with people that you care about. Well, that certainly makes sense. And, and I think people have a sense of that. You know, when you, when you hang out with people, there is that feeling that you get of, you know, being part of the group and, and it's, the interaction is stimulating and, and it feels very good. But like you say, sometimes it's just easier to go watch TV. Yeah. And the nice thing about this is that there's really no downside. Some things that people chase in this world, like fame and uh, other things are kind of zero-sum games where you have to take away from somebody else to make yourself happy. But when you hang out with people you care about, everyone benefits, right? The people you're hanging out with get happier, you get happier. There's really no downside to it. So it's a, it's a really nice finding. So we've talked about your three building blocks to being a better person, productivity, morality, and happiness. Is there anything else that adds to being a better person besides those three? Uh, yeah. So one thing I found really interesting is animal welfare. I think a lot of people know that factory farming is very cruel to animals. 
Um, but what a lot of people might not realize is cows are way bigger than chickens. Well, everybody knows that, but it turns out you got to eat like 200 chickens to make up the meat of one cow. So again, this is like all about like um, optimizing the good you do. If you eat beef for like 300 days of the year, you still would not eat an, uh, an entire cow. But I can eat a chicken in one sitting, right? So <laughs> like the, the, the mass of animals uh, affects the calculation that one would think about if they were trying to, say, minimize their harm on uh, factory farmed animals, right? And one of the cool things is that when you encourage people to, say, cut the meat that they eat, often people will reduce eating pork and beef and eat more chicken, which actually ends up hurting uh, animals more. You see how that works? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so so it's just it's interesting these counter the sometimes counterintuitive uh, ways that um, the science can can manipulate these things when you're trying to maximize. I think is really interesting. Another thing that's really cool that I think should give people some hope is that doing doing good and this is true for the kind of good you're talking about, like local helping people out around you and also uh, donating to charities is that it really does give back. Uh, in terms of happiness and in, on some analyses, even financially, people who donate more tend to make more money. And why exactly uh, giving away money makes you money is still being investigated. But one thought is that there are uh, side social benefits to generosity that have paybacks in terms of social relationships with people. Well, as you said in the beginning, you know, this is a, a never ending quest to be a better person. And I think it's also a, a personal choice. What makes me a better person may, may not be the things you would do to make you a better person, but being a better person is certainly an interesting and worthy goal, and I like the, the criteria that you've set out. Jim Davies has been my guest. He is a professor at the Institute of Cognitive Science at Carleton University in Ottawa, and he is author of the book, Being the Person Your Dog Thinks You Are, The Science of a Better You. And there's a link to that book in the show notes. Thank you for being here, Jim. I'm sure it comes as no surprise that people do better work when they're rewarded for it. Research has proven that when celebration is pre-planned into a project, people work harder and better knowing there's a payoff. And the payoff has to be more than just a paycheck or being told, hey, nice job. This is also true at home with kids and in relationships. When people have something good to work toward, there's going to be more energy, more dedication, and more sense of ownership. The result is always going to be better. On the flip side, if people work hard and receive no reward, they often become cynical and resentful. The rewards and celebrations don't have to be big, they just have to be thoughtful. That's according to Dr. John Hoover, author of the book, The Art of Constructive Confrontation. And that is something you should know. And now that the episode is over, do me a favor and just leave a rating and review of this podcast on whatever platform you're listening on. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.